Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. This is going to be our last uh, one-off, if you will, our first five series to start out the new year. Next week, we'll be back in Galatians chapter 4. Right. (laughs) This morning, however, what a joy. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to begin a little bit of an odd spot, verse 18, and we'll go through verse 25. So here the author writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 10. Where there is forgiveness of these, where these would be their sins and their lawless deeds. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word of the Lord this morning. Amen. Yeah, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much. As it says in uh, Hebrews, your word is living and active. And so we pray that in your mercy towards each one of us here this morning, uh, the book this word would live and act in us in a very mighty and powerful way that you would make for yourself, as is our focus this morning, a strong and mighty church for the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen. So I really appreciate... Uh, Ligon Duncan, he's a wonderful Presbyterian brother, deeply kind, uh, extremely charitable. And so uh, he did this recent interview with some of his more Baptistic friends, Uh, and in that interview he was asked his thoughts on a common accusation, that what confessional Baptists believe about what a church is and how a church is to be ordered is far too churchy. It's far too stringent. And this is what Ligon Duncan said to that. He said, actually, quote, the problem, the problem in evangelicalism over the last 150 years has been a non-ecclesiology. So if you're wanting a word for the Twitty Bank this morning, uh, that only makes sense to some people. It's ecclesiology. (laughs) A non-ecclesiology, that's our problem. If you don't know what ecclesiology is, it's just the biblical doctrine and study and practice of the church. So he's saying, our biggest problem, this is a quote, our biggest problem is not people believing the Bible speaks to church and then believing what they best interpret it to say. The biggest problem we have 
is those who are in the church who basically suggest ecclesiology doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we believe about it. It doesn't matter what the Bible might say about it. And so he adds this, quote, I would rather have somebody who disagrees with me in ecclesiology, but who believes the Bible has an ecclesiology and we ought to follow it, than someone who doesn't care. What's desperately needed in the evangelical world today, he says, are people who have convictions about ecclesiology and think that God cares about how we do church. Now, in light of today's text, I would just go on to ask us this. Do we see any relationship between our view of the church and our view of Jesus Christ? Might our having an ecclesiology and our strength then as a church flow from the clarity and strength of our sight of Jesus? If we see very little of the foundation, are we going to care very much about the structure? Let me tell you one of my greatest fears. One of my greatest fears is standing before Jesus on that day, the day that is mentioned in our passage. Standing before Jesus on that day and having a people that I've shepherded say, that they were surprised at just how glorious He is. That they were surprised at just how glorious His work was because I'd given them just enough Jesus to get by in the world. As we think on our purpose as a church this morning, I want you to hear this. Mighty churches, biblical churches, will apply the mighty biblical Jesus that they know or don't know. Let's see it in our passage, starting in verse 18, with the finished work of Jesus for the drifting house of God. Why do I say drifting? Because when we come to the letter of Hebrews, we find a people who are having a hard time believing just how good Jesus is. They aren't sizing him up correctly. And so the writer is constantly having to rightly biggie size Jesus for them. Hebrews is about the cosmic supremacy of Jesus because it has to be. It's about the cosmic supremacy of Jesus because they're not. Because this particular church isn't about that. Because they've drifted from it. And when Jesus is disproportioned, so is everything else. Like the dread of our sin. And the gravity, the pull of the world upon us. And the importance of a competent local church that stirs your soul all the way to glory. Where we lose clarity on Jesus. If you've ever read through Hebrews, you know his his constant exhortation is, see Him, look at Him, lay your eyes on Him over and over and over again. Where we lose clarity on Jesus, we will lose capacity to be what Jesus lived and died to make us as a church. And it's knowing this full well that our author says, see here the finished work of Jesus. See it for you. And from it, he picks out three stabilizing truths. Three stabilizing truths. And the first, I want you to hear this, is that your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, in reading the text for us, I just read the outcome. But in the flow of Hebrews chapter 10, 
we're supposed to realize how significant and settling that is. He writes from the vantage of those who are living under the Mosaic Covenant. And that Mosaic Covenant was a placeholder system for maintaining a relationship with God. And I say it that way, this placeholder system, because though it prescribed them, none of their offerings and none of their sacrifices ever came close to being good enough to make the slightest atonement for sin. Day by day, year over year, century after century, they sacrificed types and shadows that the writer of Hebrews says could never take away sins. The very repetition of their sacrifices preached to them, your sins are remembered by God. Your sins and your guilt, they remain. Even if they believed in the coming Messiah so that their sins were forgiven in principle, the fact of it awaited the Messiah's finished work in history. And as such, they lived with this constant reminder, this constant consciousness. In the final analysis, your goat hasn't done a thing about your guilt. And so their hope was deferred to the prophetic nature of that particular insufficiency. The goat did nothing for your guilt. It was insufficient, but that points somewhere. It was deferred to the blood-bought promises of what we call the new covenant. And one of those promises is in verse 17, leading into our verse 18. There our author quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, which Zach read for us, where God promises, I, <laughs> hear this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. You ever just stop right there and feel that? And then feel the last two words? <laughs> I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. If you've lived under a covenant where God's main sermon is, I will remember your sins. They're still before me. My justice is not yet satisfied. And there's nothing at all that you can do about it. You live under that. Is it not then immediately sweetest relief to hear this? That a day is coming when a sacrifice will be made that's not just all-sufficient, but all-efficient. And I will remember your sins no more. And our verse 18 is what the writer is drawing out of that promise. That where there is forgiveness of these, our sins and lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. The old sacrificial system is done because the great sacrifice that makes full atonement for our sins has been made. What Jesus did on the cross was a one and done sacrifice for sin. It was transactional. What God promised His people in the new covenant, Jesus bled and died to afford us and then to apply to us as only Jesus could. It is a remarkable thing he says about you if you're a Christian this morning in verse 14. I didn't read it for us, but you can look there now. That while you are being sanctified, growing in Christ-likeness, you are already positionally perfected. That's incredible. You're not perfect. We know. We're not fooling anybody. You're being sanctified. And yet at the same time, you are positionally perfected because of what Jesus has done for you. God's declared you, in other words, justified through faith in 
Jesus Christ. In the simplest yet astounding words, there is forgiveness of sins. There is, there is, there is forgiveness of sins. And if you've believed in Him, your sins, your sins are forgiven. So sound and complete is the work of Christ for you. There is no longer any offering for sin. Christ crucified is it. By His suffering and dying for your sins, God remembers your sins never again. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to let that immediately put an end to all your false hopes of how you might be reconciled to God. No one and nothing can do anything about your sins except Jesus. You hope in Him alone this morning, and your sins will be forgiven. But so church, this is meant, this is meant for us. It's meant to stabilize us for what we'll see. But suffice it to hear just for now, you can let it be settled. You can let it be settled. Just as there was nothing you could do to be forgiven, so there's nothing you need do now that you are forgiven. You never have need to worry or despair as if Jesus came up short for you. He didn't come up short for you. He can't come up short for you. The work is finished your sins are forgiven. And so, on account of that, you now have unfettered access to God. That's the next staple of stability for us. It's that the death of Jesus not only paid for our sins, but also paved our way thereby into the presence of God. Now, I've been to an event or two in the world of men where I couldn't gain access to where I most wanted to go. I was roped off. I wasn't VIP. I was not a high roller. My wad of ones did not persuade those who were paid to keep me out. And that was just to see Hannah Donnelly play the flute which was well worth the effort. Don't get me wrong. I actually sat right in front of her. But in all seriousness, what a work Jesus has done that you and I have the same access as Him into the presence of God. That's what he means, verse 19, in saying, we now have confidence, not just access, but confidence to enter the holy places. That wasn't always so. And I'm really going back to the precautions of the priests prior to Jesus. You may know, only one could enter behind the veil. And that just once a year. And that only with blood. And with like a rope tied around his waist with all the bells and whistles just in case his sins and failures became the death of him and they had to pull him out. And that was the way with God. Just in symbols of the real thing. How on earth then could anyone, much less so many sinners gain access, not for a time in a room made of the material, but at all times and forevermore before the throne of God above and with bold confidence. In short, 
only by the saving death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how the author puts it. He says in our passage, by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way He opened for us through the curtain. And then He says something. Wow. That is the curtain of His flesh. Okay. And you actually know this truth. We heard of it over our time in Exodus for Advent season. I, I trust that you've read of it in the Gospels before. It's still how astounding. When God the Son took on flesh and blood, He became the temple of God on earth. He became our point of access to God. Such that no one can come to God except through Him. John 14. And when Jesus said that, He was alluding to His death in some great measure. And so you remember on the cross, His flesh is torn. And His blood is shed. And His life is poured out as that offering for our sins. And then He breathes His last. And what instantly follows after that last breath in this world. The curtain in the temple separating God and sinners was torn in two because the true curtain, the flesh of Christ, had been effectively torn. What needed to be done for you and I to gain access to God in heaven had then been accomplished. The Savior had saved. Jesus Himself was rent. <laughs> and for His people, the separation between us and God, it was ended. Once for all. A new and living or undying way was open for us, never to close again. And so again, friend, there you have it. You don't have to have the moral high ground. Neither do you need to despair of being the chief of sinners. Faith in Jesus is all you need to be reconciled forever. To God. And having been reconciled, church, again, you can let it be settled. We don't need to tie a rope around our waist this morning. You don't ever have to approach God as if walking on eggshells or navigating thin ice or anticipating death or denial. Because of what Jesus has done for you, which God sent him to do, God is delighted to be hospitable to you. He is delighted to bring you in and host you forever. Your sins are forgiven. And because of that, you can make bold with God. And here's what our author now adds to this. It's a third staple of our stability. It's that as we go, we need to know our great priest is waiting on us. <laughs> He's there. That's verse 22. We have a great priest over the house of God. Jesus oversees our existence as the forgiven family of God today. I feel like that is an underrated truth. Whereas what we've said so far has focused really on His dying, His death, and the benefits of His death. The implication here is that, you know what? He may have died, but Jesus isn't dead. 
Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus has ascended. Jesus, in fact, is seated, never to be unseated, sovereign over all, for the benefit of His family. So, as to our strength and stability then, here's what I'll say. I think we've probably, over time, learned to fear change at the top. Change at the top of anything might mean wholesale changes. It might mean systemic overhaul. Most of us have known a change of bosses. We've known a change in the movers and the shakers, the decision makers, the department heads. Maybe some of us have experienced in our lives a change of parental authority. Maybe, certainly, a change in the pastorate. And it hasn't always been for the better. It's been a poor exchange in character and in expectation and in service provided. But what this brother in Hebrews is saying is that with Jesus, we can take the greatest joy and consolation Because having finished his work and being raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, Jesus holds his office and his oversight forever. There will never be a change at the top. He who has loved us into the house of God abides over the house forevermore. And He never changes. I'm kind of an authority in my home. My kids know what to expect with me. They know I need to change. (laughs) So very much. And that I, I need to become more like Jesus. But Jesus himself, as this writer says in Hebrews 13, is the same. Yesterday, and today, and forevermore. So, you can expect that having been brought in, He will never cast you out, but only invite you further into the endless security of His perfect person and His finished work. So church, listen. Our sins are forgiven. We have unfettered access to God. And He who died for us lives to serve and oversee our strength and stability as the house of God. And it's as these truths grip us that we'll more eagerly grasp our calling as the house of God. You see, the author gives us their three exhortations. Three exhortations on the basis of Jesus. And what Jesus has done and is doing for us. See in the text, he says, Therefore, since, since, let us draw near, let us hold fast, Let us consider how. So first, verse 22, look with me. Let us draw near. Let us draw near. And you'll want to notice in each of these the corporate nature of them, the congregational nature of them. I think we have a bad habit of hearing the Bible as a person and never as a people. But God speaks to us as a people. Or he speaks to us as part of a people. What he says, he says to the congregation of his people. We're in these things together, in other words. And what is it here? Forgiven, accepted, loved by the Lord of the house, it's that we would draw near. Now this phrase, draw near, is used six times in this letter. So that if we were to stop at each occurrence, the meaning would come out something 
something like this. To draw near is to nurse an intimate relationship with God. Based, as we've tried to just do, on our knowledge of Christ's work for us. Centering on spiritual growth and with an emphasis on praying for it. If you want that shorter, as I'm sure you do, it's to act on the grace of Jesus by pursuing life-sanctifying intimacy with God. Mainly by way of prayer. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, this is what he says there. He says, let us then with confidence, here's, here, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the context there says the need that we often, I think, mistake as strength for overcoming trial is actually strength for overcoming temptation to sin. It's strength for obedience. Strength for increasingly palpable spiritual gains. Strength for being a people who are undeniably related to Jesus Christ. To be among you, to be among them, is to feel and have a good sense of Him. And it begs the question, one, have we understood that to be a purpose of this gathering? <laughs> have we understood that to be the purpose of a church? You're among them, feel Him. See Him. And two, have we understood that we have the awesome privilege to draw near to God specifically for that? Oh, Lord. Help us to be a people that radiate Jesus. Why wouldn't we do that? You see in verse 22 that our author gives several qualifiers. You see them? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's a lot of lovely words just to say, let us draw near as the heirs of grace we are. Let us draw near as those who have been born again. Let us draw near, I think, as baptized believers. Let us draw near as a visible, regenerate church. In other words, we're to act as we are. Are we or are we not the priestly family of Jesus? On His gospel... We are. And so, we're to be especially given to the ministry of confident prayer for the holy growth of the family. Why wouldn't we? Maybe because we haven't known that. Maybe it just hasn't dawned on us that that's what we're supposed to be and be about. Or maybe because of this devilish chain of events that we probably have all felt in our lives. We sin. And sinning, guilt swarms over grace. And swarming, we find it very, very hard 
to continue to look Jesus straight in the face. And losing sight of Him, we drift away in guilt rather than draw near for grace. And next thing we know, we've gone so cold for distance from Him, we may think to pray, but we can hardly recall how to pray, and so we don't pray. We find prayer and drawing near to God like this to be something that is above and beyond us. The devil works really hard to put our faith in disrepute so that we don't exercise it at all. He works hard to cancel the assurance of faith. So we stay away from the throne of God. Because the devil knows just how mighty a praying church really is. And the author this morning has told us all we need to know for overcoming that chain of events. You are forgiven. You have access. The Lord who is there, He loves you. Draw near. And by the very same truths, He exhorts us next to hold fast. This is verse 23. Let us hold fast, He says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised, He is faithful. If church-wide prayer is in short supply, you better believe, so also church-wide courage will be in short supply. Having read a little bit of church history and some more in the book of Acts, I don't know of a greater void in our churches today than that of courage. And specifically, confessional courage. Church, as we're to be a praying people, we're to be a very bold people. We're to have a family ministry of confessional courage. And here, as throughout, the author is referring to the hope we have in Christ. It's our confession of heaven. You say, that's not very hard for me to confess. I'm an heir of heaven. I'm going to heaven. See how easy? That's not hard to confess, but the letter disagrees with you. Why else would he need to exhort us to hold it fast without wavering? But because it's hard to live in this world as if heaven were always your home. In the cinematic marvel known as Jumanji, not like the old one, but the one with the rock, Dwayne Johnson, I guess he wants to be called now. Uh, that's his actual name, so good for him. Jumanji. In that movie, they, they've entered a dangerous world where they mostly want to exit in order to get home. Along the way, some of them actually come to like it better there. And until better senses prevail, they actually entertain staying. But in the end, they each have three lives. And as they lose one life, after another, and arrive at the very last one, they become much more careful with their life. <laughs> they become more fearful. They become less inclined to do what they must to make it home. 
becoming less bold, they risk losing their lives. So, they learn throughout the movie that they have to fight through it together. Together. And it's when the strongest of them, brave heart, brave stone. Is that his name? Brave stone. That's what it is. Yeah. The strongest of them, he comes to his last life. And he wigs out. And the weakest of them comes alongside of him and has to hold him fast. This is what Bravestone says. It's a lot easier to be brave when you have lives to spare. It's a lot harder to be brave when you only have one life. And this is how the weaker responds. Man, we always only have one life. That's all we get. That's how it works. The question is, how are you going to live it? We got to get out of this game, is what he says. And we can do it, but only together. Only together. We're prone to thinking we've got more than a few predetermined breaths in this world, aren't we? It's so easy to settle, so easy to be consumed with life. In this world, it just tickles our ears to hear justifications for living our best life now. And so we plan and we prepare to get and to accumulate as if we can take all these things with us. And along the way, we forfeit all conviction because we can't have that and have all this stuff too. We abandon all hope because our hope is in this world and no longer in heaven. It's not as if God has made promises that He's entirely faithful to keep. Well, church, we're exhorted to be something else in this world. We're asked to see the promises that Jesus has already brought to pass and apply it to all that's yet to come. God never retreats. And you know why? Because God knows who He is. You only retreat if you're scared you're going to lose. And God doesn't lose. If He's promised it, it's going to be done. As we've already seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. So you and I, we as a church, we're to be an unretreating people. There's to be no white flag in the household of God. No wavering. Heaven is our home and we're to show it in this world with unfailing conviction and confessional courage. And there isn't a strong one among us. There is not a brave stone who doesn't need the one we only suppose to be weak, like Mouse Finbar. We are forgiven. We have access to God. The Lord who's there, He loves us. Draw near. Hold fast. Last thing, and we're done. Consider how. We find this in verses 24 and 25. And uh, these may be the churchiest verses in the whole Bible. Okay? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. 
You want a care group? It's the church. And not just a little bitty group within the church. It's the whole body. Dear ones, with every passing day, the day, the day, is drawing near in which you will see your Savior face to face. And as that's the truth, what does the Holy Spirit in the Word of God here say you need more of? The encouragement of the local church. As faith approaches sight, so that it should be solidifying, our faith should be solidifying along the way, we need, he says, not less, but more and more and more of the ministering family of God, like this one. But so, see how making a habit of neglecting the meeting that defines and disciples the church, that's not, a, that's not a new phenomenon. That's an old depravity in the early church. For some, church was tangential. It was unnecessary. Losing sight of the grand scheme of things like, you know, the return of the Lord Jesus. Church was not a priority. As if heaven were skippable. Or we didn't need all the help we can get to get to heaven well. The meetings of the body were optional to some. And in all love, I'll just tell you this. You don't want to be a part of that category, that some. You don't want to be found nominal when the king returns in all of his radiant glory. You don't want to be like the five virgins who essentially slept their way through the coming of the groom, trying too late to borrow supplies from the other virgins who stayed at the ready, burning, waiting for him. You don't want to be like that. What's more, you shouldn't want that for anybody else here either. We're to want to stir each other up to constant Christian competency. Love and good works is what he says. Even as we confess, we need to be stirred up ourselves. As we're to be a praying people, as we're to be a bold people, we're also to be a stirring people. It's so easy to drift off. Do you know that you need to be stirred by the body of Christ? Can you be stirred? And do you serve others by stirring them up? We all need you, and you need all. Christ is coming. Are we considerate? We have several good examples of this in our church, but I like to brag on Jenny, and so I'll do that. She's constantly conspiring. Who of the church can we have over today? Who needs encouragement? And how can we do it? And how can we do it as a church so that it spreads throughout? You get a church like that and you will not want to miss it. You'll find it indispensable to your life all the way to heaven. You will want that church 
just as each one of us need that church, all the more as the day is drawing near, is what he says. Oh, beloved, your sins are forgiven. You have access to God. And the God you find there, he loves you. See Jesus and flowing out of that sight of Jesus, own an ecclesiology. Let's continue to be a family that ministers to one another by confident prayer, confessional courage, and this constant consideration. How can we be increasingly competent and increasingly readied for the Lord Jesus? In the end, here's the point. The stronger our view of Christ, the stronger this church will be for Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we leave it with you. Please do far more in our hearts right now than the mere words of a man can do. Let your word and your spirit powerfully apply the truth of Scripture to every heart now. Build for yourself a beautiful people here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.